Church, I invite you to open with me in God's Word to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. While you're turning there, you'll, you'll probably notice already this morning that my family is not with me. Um, we've got a little one at home sick, and we're just trying to be cautious and make sure that we don't spread that to anybody. And so, yes, Cherie is at home with those, the three little girls. Uh, the other two, we, they jumped ship. Uh, we sent them with family and friends so they wouldn't get anything. But I told our men this morning at our brotherhood breakfast, I said, listen, I'm really going to miss my wife sitting on that second row smiling at me. And I thought about asking one of y'all too, but none of y'all are pretty enough. <laughs> there were volunteers. There were volunteers. I told them no. And, uh, but uh, that's, right. that's right. No, Barry's not it. I can guarantee you. We love him. You going to smile at me while I'm preaching, Sheila? That's good. That's good. I appreciate that. And, I pre say, and say amen. Man. Man. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the first half of this chapter this morning, continuing in this series of sermons and what it means to be called to endure. Being called to endure. This morning, we're going to consider that endurance is possible. It is possible to make it. It's possible to finish well in our faith. I think it's an important reminder for all of us because sometimes you've been walking with Jesus long enough, there's times where it feels like you're not going to make it. It feels like everything's stacked against you in this life. But endurance is possible. I'm really careful with pop culture references in a sermon because sometimes it comes back to bite you. Uh, and so just know when I reference this, I'm not endorsing it, but I thought it was appropriate and Cherie gave the stamp of approval, so uh, I ran it by her. But there's this series of movies called the Mission Impossible movies. And, and y'all who watched have, have seen these movies before, you kind of know how it goes, right? It, it, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then it's laid out for him, right? It starts the same way every time after a really cool action scene where it seems like he's about to lose his life. And the mission is seemingly impossible, right? Like, it seems like there's no way he's going to get this done. That's why he's being asked to do it. That's why the movies seem to be pretty good. And here's the reality. The mission would be impossible, but what's really cool about those movies is the main character gets all these gadgets and gizmos along the way that make it possible for him to complete that mission. Well, believers, listen carefully. Our mission to endure is not impossible. And here's why it's not impossible. It's not because anything special about us. It's not because we somehow have, have gotten our lives together or, or, or there's something unique about who we are as people. No, we're still very broken people inclined to live in the strength of the flesh. But Jesus gives us everything we need to endure. It's not in anything else. It's not in, uh, again, any inward strength that I'm going to ask you to conjure up this morning. No, God gives us everything we need to endure. And more importantly, we find all of those things in Jesus alone. And that's what Paul tells Timothy here in these first 13 verses. He calls him to endure he tell, calls him to endure suffering and hardship and pain. And he says, these are all the things that come along with that. And he encourages him to hold on to those things. 
And most importantly, by the time we get down to verse 8, he says, remember Jesus Christ. And so that's my encouragement to you this morning, that you would remember that everything you need to make it is in Jesus. We're not going to give you five steps to a better life. We're not going to tell you how to make all the financial pieces fit together. We're not going to have a healing service this morning. But what we are going to tell you is this. Everything you and I need to endure, to remain steadfast, is in Jesus. I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Also encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, there are Bibles in the pew backs, but then also it's going to be on the screen as well. Paul writes to young Timothy, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get the share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sufficiently encouraging this morning. It's sufficiently clear already. And so God, I pray that in the next few moments that I won't say anything to, to cloud our understanding of the truth of your word, but rather that you'll make your word even that more clear so that we can apply it to our lives, that you'll convict us and challenge us and encourage us through your word. And God, ultimately we trust that you will sufficiently work by the power of your word and the power of your spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Endurance is possible, friends. And it's possible because God has given us everything we need to endure. Paul wants Timothy and us to remember exactly how the Lord has equipped us for endurance. We're going to see three things that the Word of God tells us this morning of how we're equipped for endurance. First, consider this. To endure, we must cling to grace. We must cling to grace. We sang in that song just a moment ago, our choir led us in this, grace is strong enough to save us. Grace is strong enough to save the world. And it's in that grace that we trust this morning. Paul begins in verse 2 in a very personal way. He says, you, Timothy, you, my son, 
therefore, he says. And all of this, it, it links it to the previous paragraph. If you were with us last week, we, we ended on a rather difficult note in chapter 1. And there are those characters mentioned, these large groups of people even mentioned, who did not remain steadfast, who did not endure. And what Paul says here, if you're going to be different, Timothy, if you're going to be unique, this is how it's going to happen. If Timothy is going to endure in faithfulness, Paul tells him to trust in the grace of God. Then he says this, he says also in verse 20, I want you to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase, to be strong, Paul uses this a lot. It's kind of like it comes up in all of his letters almost. But in Ephesians chapter 6, you know that chapter is the one where uh, Paul is, is telling the church at Ephesus, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to stand firm. And then that chapter talks about the armor of God. And so what he's saying here is I want you to be strong in grace. Now, that's something I want us to consider just for a moment. The contrast between strength and grace. The contrast between strength and, you could say it this way, a need for grace. I think a lot of us want to be strong because it implies a sense of self-sufficiency. That we've got our act together. That we're tough. That we've got grit. That we're going to make it. But Paul tells Timothy, I want you to be strong in grace. And I want you to be strong in Jesus. Why is that? Well, real strength. Listen carefully. Real strength is not found in who we are, but in who is in us. So what do we find unique about Christ? We find grace in Christ. He says in verse 1, we can't look for grace anywhere else. That's what our flesh is inclined to do, right? We want to find strength and grace in all the wrong places. We want to find it from within or even the encouragement of others, perhaps. We want to get all the equipping we possibly can so that we can be stronger. And instead, God says, through Paul, we can't find grace anywhere else. So if you feel weak this morning, if you feel hungry for strength, you're an excellent candidate for grace. In fact, I would say that grace is not nearly as real to us unless we experience weakness. But also concerning this grace, if it's found in Jesus, this means that every single child of God has this same enabling grace. It's not withheld from any one of us. The same grace that Paul tells Timothy to stand strong in is the same grace that we have access to today. It's available to all of us. And that's why this second encouragement about grace is important. We help others find grace through discipleship. We help others access grace as we make disciples. Notice what it says in verse 2. He says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to commit it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's instructions to Timothy here may seem overly precise, but Paul knew that he needed to spell this out to Timothy as he neared the end of his life. Again, remember the context here. This is Paul's last letter that he would write. 
And he's writing these words to a young man serving in a very difficult place in Ephesus. And he says, I want you to cling to grace and I want you to show others what this grace means as well. I want you to pass it on to faithful men. Grace is so valuable that it cannot be left to mere chance that others will find it. We have to be intentional in making disciples. It's a careful and precise work that requires discipline and commitment, hard work. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning, we're not there yet as a church. I heard it illustrated to me this way um, through a book I was reading about discipleship and how that should look in the life of a church. I'm sure we have some people in the room who call themselves golfers. We got some golfers here today? You don't have to be good at it. You just say you're a golfer. I know there's some of y'all in here. You got a set of clubs in your garage somewhere. You know what I'm talking about. Well, here's the thing about golf. The reason it's so difficult is you've got to be good at a lot of different things to play. You see, some guys, they work really hard at driving the golf ball, right? That's the one that, man, that gets everybody's attention if you can hit the ball really far, right? You pull out the driver, you hit it as far as you can. And that's an important thing in golf. You've got to be able to do that. And that would be more like what we are doing right now, right? Large group of people. Where it's in front of everyone. It's it's something that seems to be very obvious this morning, right? You came here, we had 30 minutes of singing, 30 minutes of preaching, right? It's the it's the bigger, more out front kind of activity. But you see, golf's not just about the driver. You've got to also be good at playing your irons. Right? Your irons are the thing that you have to hit off the ground, right? In the middle of the fairway. And you gotta be a little more precise with those because you're aiming at something off in the distance. That would be a little bit more like our teaching exercises, right? We encourage you to be a part of a small group of people where you're gathered together around the Word of God and you're hearing some more careful teaching that's kind of aiming at some critical issues in your life. But real golfers, and I would say that real good, strong churches, they don't just drive the golf ball well in the public setting or teach well. They also can putt pretty good too. And that's the one that no one wants to focus on. But that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying this is the thing that requires hard work, discipline, and precision. Because ultimately, that's what it all boils down to, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul's saying here. I want you to trust this to faithful men. He doesn't say, I want you to preach really well. He doesn't say, I want you to have the best small group leaders. He says, I want you to get with a few faithful men, and I want you to show them what the Word of God says. And trust grace to them. We've got work to do in that area. God equips us for endurance by giving us access to grace through Jesus. And that grace is meant to be passed on. But secondly, to endure, we must live on mission. We've got to live on mission. This is kind of the heart of this passage, verses 3 through 7. Paul uses his own illustrations to describe what this mission should look like. And the good thing is these... These illustrations aren't real disconnected from any of us. We can probably relate to them in some way. First, he directs our attention to a soldier. And in telling us about the soldier in verses 3 and 4, he says this about the mission. Our mission guarantees suffering. Suffering is something that comes along with the mission, is what Paul says. He says in verse 3, share in suffering. He doesn't say to run from suffering. He doesn't say to despair when you suffer. Share in suffering. 
The word share there also communicates the need that, that we might embrace suffering as an opportunity to then live in grace. Paul uses other military imagery throughout his letters. I mentioned Ephesians 6 a moment ago. That's the armor of God. And the reason Paul uses this imagery is because he would have related to it in his day. But I think there's a lot about it for us to relate to as well. You know, we do a poor job enduring suffering because we're often surprised by suffering. For some reason, we get shocked when we go through a hard thing. Even though we don't believe this as Christians, and even though we don't believe this, because this is certainly not what the Bible teaches. The Bible never says, if you sign up to walk with Jesus, life is going to be a bed of roses. Even though we would never affirm that is true, we're still surprised by suffering. We're still surprised by hardship. You know, when a soldier goes into battle, he needs to know from which direction the gunfire is coming. He needs to understand that he's walking into a battlefield. The problem for most of us is we live as though we're in peacetime. We don't live as though we're in a battle. We live as though everything is just right with the world. We live as though that there's not a world out there that's lost and dying and desperately in need of the gospel. We live as though that there's not a real enemy out there that wants to do nothing less than to destroy us. I spent some time with one of our senior adults this past week, Miss Edith Baker. Those of you who know Miss Edith know that she loves to tell stories. And the best thing to do I found when you get with Miss Edith is you kind of funnel the stories in one direction and you can kind of make the visit efficient. And so this past week when I was with her, I said, hey, Miss Edith, I said, you were a little girl around the time of World War II. Can you tell me what that time was like as a child? And here she went. I mean, story after story after story. But we were on one track, right? We just stayed on that one track. And here's what she said. She said, oh, it was unlike any time I've ever lived in. Oh, we were given only a certain amount of food to eat. And, and hey, there was this butter. At least they, she said this. At least they said it was butter. You could hear her say that, right? And they, and they gave us this stuff. They said it was butter and it really wasn't butter. And, and all these things were hard on my family. Why was she telling me these stories? Because she lived in wartime. Things were different. Things were unique. It required participation from everyone. Brothers and sisters, let's get on the same page. We are not living in peacetime. We live in a very real spiritual battle. Don't be surprised by suffering. But secondly, he moves on to the illustration of an athlete. Our mission demands discipline. Notice what he says in verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, we would think this has more to do with the rules that are set in place during the competition. And that's what I was thinking of at least. But as I began to study this a little more carefully, I began to see that in Paul's context, he was speaking most likely from uh, the backdrop of the Olympic Games. And yeah, there's rules involved with that. But what Paul was maybe talking about or alluding to were the rules that preceded the Olympic Games. So now, wait a minute, what's that about? Well, see, nowadays with the Olympics, we have all these competitions, right? Where uh, They're even working on it right now, getting ready for those Olympic Games. 
And, and they're, they're practicing and they're going through competitions even now and they're weeding out those who maybe aren't worthy to compete in the big games that are coming. Well, see, in Paul's day, they didn't have anything like that. They didn't have all these things to say, well, this is a real athlete and this one's not. They signed something like a contract and, and a promise that said, for the last 10 months, I've been training carefully for these games. I've been preparing with all I've got I've left family and friends behind to prepare for this moment. It required discipline long before the game ever happened. That's what Paul's talking about. It's, it's that type of discipline. It's that type of commitment. The commitment that, that points to something that's happening when no one else is watching. Our standards of discipline come directly from the life and teachings of Jesus, friends. That's what Paul would have been alluding to here. Jesus prayed, so should we. He practiced the discipline of forgiveness, so should we. He knew the word. Yes, he was the word, but he knew the word too. Faithful witness among crowds of people and fellowship with the saints. These acts of discipline help us endure suffering. But third, this last picture, our mission requires faithfulness. Paul moves finally to this picture of the hardworking farmer in verse 6. And he says they ought to be the first to get the share of the crops. Now, the contrast is important here. You got the athlete, which is a very public thing, and you got the farmer that's a very private thing. I don't know of many farmers that hold a press conference when they bale their hay. Be kind of weird, right? Nobody wants to hear about that. Nobody wants to be around either when it happens. It's real work. It's steady faithfulness. It's persistence. It's done in a way that maybe no one else sees. The steady work of the farmer with his hand to the plow is often unseen by the watching world. Our mission demands that type of faithfulness. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul says it this way. Same type of imagery here. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up. Jesus also called himself a good shepherd, a faithful shepherd. God has given us everything we need to endure. He's given us grace, and he's given us a very clear mission and everything we need to succeed in that mission. But finally, and this is the most important, he has given us Jesus. To endure, we must look to Jesus. Look again how Paul begins verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, he says. And then he teaches two truths about Jesus that I want us to hold on to as we consider what it means to look to him. First, look at this. Jesus reigns victorious. Look at the rest of verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul wanted it to be clear. The contrast between his condition and Christ's secured victory. 
He looked at the chains that were binding his hands and his feet. Perhaps he saw the bars that were positioned on the wall across from him. And yet he knew this gospel was not bound. Why? Because Jesus Christ has risen. The problem for most of us is we tend to liken our condition or our suffering with an implication that somehow God is not as powerful as he once was. When we suffer, instead of expecting it like we should, embracing it like we should, we begin to ask, God, what are you doing? Have you lost complete control? Is that why I'm going through all of this? Our condition, no matter how bleak, never diminishes God's power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, you may know this verse, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength, it is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Embrace suffering, he says. Why? Because Jesus reigns victorious. But last, as we look to Jesus, we must remember that Jesus remains faithful. We see this in verses 10 through 13. Paul says, this is why I endure. I endure all things for the elect, so that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Cherie asked me yesterday when I was going over the sermon with her, uh, she said, hey, are you going to talk about the elect in verse 10? And I said, well, if there's time left. <laughs> we need to cover this though, all right? It has a lot of controversy surrounding it, right? Predestination, the doctrine of election, all those things. And those are kind of hot topics in the theological world today. And I don't, I'm not going to you know, sit here and teach on th about 30 minutes on this, but I want you to understand this. For Paul and for us, the doctrine of election never diminished his passion for evangelism. To believe in election, brothers and sisters, wherever you stand on that issue, does not mean that it's a pass not to be an evangelist. It's all throughout Scripture. Paul talks about it regularly, in fact. Jesus talks about it regularly. So we can't ignore it, so what do we do with it? We do just what we would do if it wasn't there. We remain passionate about sharing the gospel with a lost and dying world. That does not change. You see, the issue is application. The issue is what do you do with these things? You could say it this way. The doctrine of election does not make our preaching unnecessary. It makes it essential. More than that, and this is where I tend to cling to this when I see these words in Scripture, it gives us assurance that salvation will happen. When we share the gospel, it gives us hope. It gives us assurance that God's word is indeed effective. These are words that give us more zeal to be evangelistic. It gives us more zeal to go to the nations. Why? Because God wants the nations to be glad. Because God wants the nations to be saved. 
Because God in His sovereign will has appointed us to go to these people with the gospel. So again, not to... Uh, what I want you to know is this. Whether you're talking to someone who would land on one side or the other on this issue, I want you always to end up there. How do we apply this? We apply this by even more zeal to be evangelistic. He says this also in verse 11. He says this saying is trustworthy. This points to God's faithfulness again. Verse 13, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Jesus remains faithful despite who we are, friends. We find everything we need to endure in Christ, and this is good news for those who are in Christ. This should encourage every one of us if we have chosen to give our life to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it also, should, it also should burden us that there are those who are not in Christ, those who are suffering in this world apart from the hope and the grace that is in Jesus. And so it should encourage us to live our lives on mission. 